We'll begin at John 12, 34, 34 to 36. Who is this son of man? The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you that he is the light. We pray that as we study his words, that his light will shine upon us and will be more enlightened, more illumined to know your will and have confirmation of your will that we might live accordingly. May we walk in his light. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, John 12, 34, Jesus is still speaking to the multitudes. He has addressed them already and has announced to them about him being lifted up. They are curious as to why he says that he is going to be lifted up. They understand why he says it, but they are trying to figure it out, and Jesus explains himself to them. This is what we find in verses 34 to 36. Jesus explains further what it means to be lifted up so that the multitude might know exactly what he means and that they need to believe in that and embrace it. They need to embrace that he must be lifted up. And the fact that he must be lifted up should not be an obstacle to them. It should not be a stumbling block to them. It should not make them reject the faith, reject the, the one in whom they should believe, Christ himself, the Son of Man and the light of the world. The fact of his lifting up should not turn them away. In fact, it should make them believe in him. They should cherish and they should value the fact that he is to be lifted up. This is the point of our passage. And if they correctly understood who the Son of Man is, this would not surprise them. This would not cause them to stumble if they correctly understood the identity and the ministry of the Son of Man. Verse 34, The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? The multitude therefore, the crowds therefore, the great throng therefore, why? Jesus just said in 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. That's what he said. John the Apostle explains for clarification, verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That is, he was to be crucified. That's how he would be lifted up. And that's how the redemption of men would be accomplished and he would draw them to himself. The crucifixion, the death of Christ on the cross, is the means God uses to draw men to himself. To, to Christ, 
for salvation. This is the way of salvation. If it doesn't happen, then there will be no drawing all to himself. If the crucifixion doesn't happen, then there is no redemption. That is the point of verses 32 to 33. But the multitude in 34, they are perplexed about this. They are curious about this. They're not perplexed or curious about what he just said. Notice that. They're not confused about what he just said. They know what he just said and they know what he meant by what he said. They know he meant he's saying he's going to be crucified. And if he's not crucified, he's not going to draw all. But if he is crucified, he's going to draw all to himself. What is this about him being crucified? We know he means he's going to be crucified, but why him crucified? Why is the Son of Man supposed to be crucified? That is the part that they didn't understand. That's the part they didn't embrace. That's the part they didn't believe. Jesus, in other words, clearly announced he's going to die. Let's first establish that fact. Right here in this context, the multitude understood that he said he was going to die on the cross. They understood that. What they don't like, what they don't want, is belief that the Christ, the Son of Man, is supposed to die. That's what they don't like. First, let's establish the one, and then we'll establish the other. The one, that Jesus clearly announced his death and resurrection. He clearly announced his death and resurrection. He, yes, spoke in parables. Yes, he spoke in figurative terms about many subjects, and even on occasion this subject, but not always. But not always. He clearly told the people at times what was to happen. Our examples are in the book of Matthew. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's Matthew, the apostle, telling us that Jesus Christ showed his disciples explicitly that this would happen. 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter, did Peter understand what Jesus just said in verse 21? Of course he did. That's why he takes Christ aside and rebukes him. He doesn't want that to happen to his own Lord, his own master. He doesn't want it to happen. Mistreatment by the hands of the, the Jewish Leadership and the Romans? I don't want that to happen to you. But in this moment, in this moment, Peter doesn't comprehend that it has to happen for your own salvation, Peter. Haven't I been saying this all along? Why is it that you're so lost in my mistreatment that you don't understand my mistreatment is necessary for your salvation? Peter knew that. It's just he's 
that thought is escaping his mind because he's overwhelmed by how his Lord is going to be mistreated. And he doesn't want that to happen. Chapter 17, Matthew 17. 17, 22 to 23. Matthew 17, 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved. Why? Because they're focused on his mistreatment, delivered into the hands of men, and killed. And his resurrection is something that is not at the forefront of their mind. They're thinking about his mistreatment, his persecution to death. And that deeply grieves them. Do they know that he's going to die? Do they know he's going to rise from the dead? He clearly told them. Then we go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 62. At the very end of the chapter, Matthew 27, 62. This has to do with Jesus' enemies. Jesus' enemies understood Jesus' prophecy of his death and resurrection. Matthew 27, 62. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set the seal on the stone. This guard that they received is a guard of soldiers, several soldiers to guard the tomb. Why? Because Jesus' enemies want the grave secure because they know he clearly told them that he was going to die and rise again on the third day. They knew it. Well, what have we established, therefore, with this? We have established that the Old Testament, we will establish that in a moment, the Old Testament and leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that the people, both his own disciples and the enemies of Christ, they all understood, and in John 12, the multitude understood that Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die and rise again. I'm going to die and rise again clearly announced by the prophets of the Old Testament, Christ here, and John explains to us. He clearly announced that to the people. We must then ask, if he clearly announced this truth to the people, why did they not believe it? Why did they refuse to believe it? Why was it not the focus of their life and faith? We must ask, that question. And what is the answer to that question? Nobody wants to think about the cross because the cross relates to our sin. If the cross relates to our sin and our need of redemption, 
repentance for forgiveness of sins, and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, if that is the way of salvation, people don't want to think about how much their sin is an affront to God, how much their sin offends God, how much their sin deserves his punishment, and that they're not good, they're not good enough, they can't do good works, they have to believe in Jesus' own good works to save them from their sins. That is the transaction that they don't want to conduct. That is the, the thing they don't want to believe, that they are not good enough, their works are worthless, they must believe in Christ, and His works, His righteousness is counted to them, reckoned to them. That transaction is what must take place and that they don't want to believe. So, in not believing it, let's see what the multitude says. Verse 34. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. We heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. Okay, first, they bring up a biblical question. But... They should know better than to say this. They should know better than to say this, we have heard out of the law. Well, if you heard out of the law, why aren't you studying the law carefully to know what it says about everything? Why aren't you studying it carefully to know what it says about everything? Further, they say, out of the law. Out of the law. If you notice in your Bibles... And if you study cross-references, when it says we heard out of the law, your Bibles will likely give you at least one or two references that are not in the law of Moses. Why? Because they're using, the crowds are using this phrase, the law, in reference to any part of the Old Testament, which is fine because they had that practice of doing it. Even Jesus does so and the apostles do so to use a short word, a brief word, to describe everything in the Old Testament, the law. Whether we're talking about um, one part of the law or the whole law, it depends on the context of the way it's used for us to understand. Sometimes the law means the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. At other times, the law means any part of the Old Testament. And even sometimes the law means the Ten Commandments. It depends on the context. We have to study the context to understand how it's being used. Let's confirm this use of the phrase, the law, because critics of the Bible will sometimes say that the law is only the law of Moses, so you can't use it this way. They're using it wrongly. No, that's not the case. It was the custom of the people to do so. John 10. John 10, 34 John 10, 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? You are gods. That is taken from Psalm 82, 6. Yet Christ says, your law. Christ says, your law. They don't attack him for that reason. They attack him for claiming to be the son of God. That's John 10. John chapter 15. John 15, 25. 
John 15, 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause, taken from Psalm 35, 19 and 69, 4. Psalm 35, 19 and 69, 4. They hated me without a cause. Yet it's from the Psalms. Another one is 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And yet he calls it the law from the prophet Isaiah. That's the same that we have here in John, John 12. The law says this. So, then we move on to the Christ. That the Christ is to remain forever. And then they use as a synonym of Christ, Son of Man. Christ and Son of Man. They themselves, the people know that these words are synonyms, they are interchangeable, that there are different words or different titles, different names to give to Jesus Christ. They know that. They know that and they assert it. Christ and Son of Man. Now, now, since they do so, it's valid to understand that they understood many things about the coming of Christ. They did understand many things about the coming of Christ, correctly and some incorrectly, and some they completely ignored because it was inconvenient to them. In this case, they correctly call him the Christ, the coming one, the Christ and the Son of Man. They're just hesitant to assign these names to Jesus of Nazareth standing right before them. They know that these are real and valid words. They are just hesitant to describe these words of Jesus of Nazareth who's preaching to them, who's talking to them. That's where their problem is. Now, let's see that the word the Christ is in fact an Old Testament word. We have to establish that it is an Old Testament word commonly known to the people because the unbelievers of the Bible, commentators who don't believe in the Bible, they say that this word Christ was an invention of man and it was not and is not found in the Old Testament. Really, they say that. But let's prove that that's not the case. 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. In the song of thanksgiving, the song of Hannah. Hannah's song of thanksgiving. She's rejoicing in God's provision for her. She had her prayer answered and she conceived a son. And in her thanksgiving, now she is a woman of the Old Testament, right? She gave birth to Samuel. She's a woman. This will show what this woman, the supposed lonely, and lo- uh, ignorant, 
mistreated women of the Old Testament what they believed. The supposed lonely and mistreated ignorant women of the Old Testament what they knew. Supposedly. Notice, 1 Samuel 2.10. This is at the end of her prayer or song. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed one. Anointed one. Who is this anointed one? And who is the king? His king. His king, his anointed one. The Lord, and then the Lord's king. The Lord's anointed one. The Lord has to be the Lord, the Lord God. Let's say that is God the Father. So God the Father has his king. God the Father has his anointed one. The word Messiah and the word Christ both mean anointed one. In your mind or in your Bible, you could say, he will give strength, the Lord will give strength to his king, and he, the Lord, will exalt the horn of his Christ. Who is the Christ of God? But Jesus Christ. And notice that Christ is called a king here. In the days of Hannah and Samuel, there was no king until later when the people complain in chapters 8 to 12 and they receive a king. They don't have any kingship. They have judgeship. They have no kings. But she here is rejoicing in a king. Why is she thinking in terms of a king? Which king could it be? It's not Saul. It's not some other man. It's not David. They're not even around. They're not around the block at this time. It's not even an issue at this time. So the king has to be King Christ, Christ the King, King Messiah. That's who it has to be, the anointed one. Further, chapter 2, 1 Samuel 2. When the Lord, when the Lord rebukes Eli, the priest, he says this, 1 Samuel 2, 35. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed one always. 35. When the Lord rebukes uh, Eli, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Who is this faithful priest that God will raise up? Well, in the next chapter, it's Samuel. And forward, it's Samuel, the priest, the Levitical priest. It's Samuel. And it says here in 35 that Samuel will walk, he will walk. And the he, your NASB, has a small h, which likely is a verification that he's talking about Samuel. He will walk before my anointed one always. That means that Samuel will always walk in the light of Christ throughout his life. Throughout his life, Samuel will be diligent and obedient to walk before Christ always. That's, way, that's the way he's describing it here. 
So the anointed one that Samuel believes in is Christ, King Messiah Christ. Furthermore, let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verse 2. Psalm 2, 2. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one, His Christ. At this point, your New American Standard Bible gives you a capital A for anointed one. Does it not? They know that this is a direct reference to Christ the King, Christ our Lord and Savior, King Messiah. They know that, and they have that as an established fact because in verse 7, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is the Father speaking to the Son. And also in verse 12, do homage to the Son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The son is mentioned in verse 12. Furthermore, this is verified because it's quoted, this psalm is quoted, it's one of the favorite psalms quoted by the apostles to prove Christ. And it's quoted in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, 25 to 28. 25 to 28. Acts 4, 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Who was anointed? Your holy servant, Jesus, was anointed. That's why he's called Christ. So, we've got these examples. These are just a couple. Examples of the Old Testament using the word Christ, or anointed one to describe the coming Jesus of Nazareth to die on the cross and rise from the dead for our sins. Well, how about the word son of man? Because they use it synonymously in John 12. They say, we heard in the law, out of the law, that the Christ is to remain forever. Who is this son of man? What about the phrase son of man? Is that found also in the Old Testament? And is it found in reference to Christ? Yes. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel the prophet, 600 years before the coming, first coming of Christ, said the following, wrote the following. Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In this case, it says that the Son of Man comes, and the Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days, which is a figure of speech to describe God the Father, that the Son of Man is given worldwide eternal dominion. Worldwide eternal dominion and worship by all the peoples and nations and men of every language. This cannot be a human, a mere human. It has to be the Christ, the Son of Man. In this passage, it says the Son of Man has eternal dominion, right? He receives and has eternal dominion. So in their mind, the multitude's mind, well, it says Christ, I mean the Son of Man, has eternal dominion. So why are you saying the Son of Man is to be lifted up? Psalm 8 also uses the phrase Son of Man. And Psalm 8 also prophesies of eternal dominion, having conquest of the whole earth, having dominion, rulership over the whole earth. Psalm 8 refers to Son of Man and this dominion of the world. And that's confirmed in Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2, 5 to 8, he confirms Psalm 8 refers to Christ as Son of Man with this eternal kingship. Okay, so the multitudes, when they say, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, who is the Son of Man? Have they correctly understood that the Christ has an eternal kingdom? Yes. But what is it that they fail to understand? While they were giddy over the thought that they would be blessed forever by having faith in the coming Christ. They were fanatic, uh, fanatical. They were giddy over that thought. Oh, this is what we're going to enjoy forever and ever. So they were fixated on that and devoid of what? Yes, we just saw he's got an eternal dominion, but what did they not get? What did they not believe? What did they refuse to believe? That he would be crucified. That he would be crucified. And how do we know this? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 will start at 24. We'll read 24 to 26. Daniel 9, 24. Daniel the prophet, also 600 years before the first coming of Christ, says this. 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild 
Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, or you could say Christ the King. Messiah and Christ, same word, or anointed one. The Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah, the Christ, will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. It says in 26, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This verb to be cut off is the verb to be executed, to be put to death. Messiah will be cut off. Who is this Messiah? It's Messiah the Prince, verse 25. And why is this necessary? Because of verse 24, to deal with our sin. To deal with our sin, to atone for our sin. Atonement for our sin is in verse 24. Christ the King is in verse 25. And the suffering King, the suffering anointed one, the suffering Christ is in verse 26. The suffering Christ. This verse, they refused to interpret. They refused to understand, refused to interpret correctly because they didn't want to believe in the coming suffering servant. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is another example. Who but the very most uh, blatant of the skeptics and unbelievers could deny that Isaiah 53 is a prediction of the coming suffering of Christ. This is indeed what we have here. We have this clearly announced. We pick it up at verse 4. 53.4 Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? He was cut off. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
Is he not, Isaiah the prophet, is he not clearly describing the death of Christ? The death of Christ. And not only the death of Christ, the certain death of Christ, but its death in relation to our sin, in relation to the forgiveness of our sins, our justification. Verse 11, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, He himself bore the sin of many. Bore the sin of many. Verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He had to die to pay for our sins. Who had to die? Christ had to die. Who has many names. The righteous one, my servant in this passage. But Christ elsewhere. He had to do this. The people completely either ignored these passages or referred these passages to other men. That's what they did. They did it in the history of the interpretation of Isaiah 53. But you can't do that. It has to be a reference to Christ. It does not refer to Hezekiah. It does not refer to Jeremiah. It does not refer to Josiah. Remember on the road that Philip in Acts chapter 8 met the Ethiopian eunuch? The eunuch had somebody tell him, probably, and that's why he asked Philip the question, of whom does the prophet speak in Acts 8? Does he speak of himself or someone else? And then it says, and from this scripture, Philip preached the gospel of Christ to the eunuch from Isaiah 53. It was inevitable, based on the prophecies of the prophets, that the Christ must suffer. So, the multitude should have known this and should have believed it. We also must understand the cross, believe in it, and preach the cross. Even if the world doesn't like it, we must do it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If we don't preach the word of the cross, there is no power that's going to save us from any of our sins. We must preach the cross. People must believe in the cross cross of Christ to be saved. They will perish otherwise. They might laugh and ridicule it. They might consider it foolishness but not us. Moreover, we read that Christ explains who he is. Christ explains who he is. They ask the question, who is this son of man that he must be lifted up? He explains in 35 to 36. He's the light. The son of man is the light, which implies that you people are in darkness if you are oblivious to the fact that I must die. You are in darkness if you are oblivious, if you reject, if you neglect, if you don't want to believe that I will die on the cross to forgive sins. You are in darkness. 
So you must believe that I am the light and get out of your dark and dismal life and come into my life by means of the cross. Verse 35. Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. 35, he says, for a little while longer. 36, he says, while you have the light. While the light is preaching to you, while you have access to the light, while you can see the light, while you can touch the light, feel the light, while you hear him, why don't you believe? There's going to come a time when I'm not going to be around anymore. There will come a time when that takes place. And who knows? No one else might preach to you. No one else might teach you the truth. John 16, 16. John 16, 16. We read from 16, 16 to 22. A little while and you will no longer behold me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? Then I said, a little while and you will not behold me. And again, a little while and you will behold me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. Christ, by saying a little while, is telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. You must understand that I am going to die and rise again. You won't always have access to me, so you must believe now. Believe now, and believe that I will die and rise again, for your sins. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Today is the day of salvation. 35. In verse 35, we find a phrase where he says, Walk while you have the light. In 36, he says, believe in the light. Walk while you have it and believe in the light. He wants them to believe and enter into the sphere of light. This implies that they are in darkness. He's preaching the gospel. You think you are enlightened people. You think that everything is fine. You think you are okay between you and God. You think that when you die, everything will be just fine. But you must believe that you are in darkness and you must walk in the light. Because if you're in darkness, 
The darkness will overtake you. If you are in darkness, you don't know where you are going. Your sins in darkness blind you so much that they deceive you into thinking, oh yes, I'm a good man. Oh yes, I do good things. Oh yes, I am religious. Oh yes, I know what to believe. And when I die, all will be well. No, you're so blinded by sin in your darkness that you don't know where you're going. You don't know what actually is going to happen to you. You have to come to a realization, a humble realization, that you are lost sinners. You are blind sinners. You live in a dark world. You live in a dark and damp and dank world. You have to get out of that and into the light. That's what you must understand. And if you don't, there's no hope. Believe while you are in the light. So what does it entail? We've already said. It entails believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. Trust His righteousness instead of our own. But it also entails faithfulness in Christ. What Christ does to bring us into the light, Christ keeps us in the light. When we are in Christ, the light, we cannot resort to our old ways. We cannot practice wickedness. We cannot live the way we used to live while we are in the light of Christ. When we're in the light of Christ, the light of Christ shines on our sin, our darkness, and expels it. It makes it go away so that it's only bright and brilliant all around because Christ's work His powerful work is at work in us. So he wants us, in this case, to believe in the light so that we might have the light, verse 35, and in verse 36, become sons of light. No more sons of darkness, sons of light. Well, what does it mean to be in darkness and what does it mean to be in the light? Let's compare and contrast. This truth. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. We'll read 1 to 21. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Walking in the light of Christ. 5 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a clear demarcation between the way we used to be and the way we are now. That's what it means to walk in the light. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five, one to twelve. First Thessalonians five, one to twelve. This kind of walking continues until the return of Christ. First Thessalonians five, one to eleven. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, we have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. 1 John 1. 1 John chapter 1, 5 to 10. 1 John 1, 5 to 10. 1 John 1, 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It is impossible to say we have fellowship with God. Today, people say, I have a relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. It's impossible to say I have a relationship with Jesus and walk in darkness. Verse 6. If that is the case, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2. 1 John 2. 1 John 2. 7 to 11. 1 John 2. 7 to 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We can't be haters of the brethren because the brethren are following the truth in the light. We cannot be haters of the brethren, the brothers, and say we belong to Christ. The two don't go together. We must fellowship with Christ, fellowship with his true brethren, and love them in the proper way. These are the evidences of walking in the light. Walking in the light of Christ. Remember we said that Christ was going to be there temporarily? Well, that happened literally right after he said these words. Because it says in John 12, 36, that he walked away. He hid himself. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. Yes, he was about to be arrested, but momentarily he withdrew from the multitude. He hid himself from them and they didn't hear him preach again. They didn't hear another discourse from him again. That was their last opportunity to hear him in person preach the true gospel to them. He actually walked away. He hid himself from them. And so we are reminded, are we going to believe and obey the words of Christ? Are we going to come out of darkness into light? Always, always keep that at the forefront and preach that to others. They take the preaching of the gospel casually. They take it flippantly. They don't really care. They think that people who speak this way, the way Jesus spoke, that people like this are fanatical, that they are weird, that they are insane, that they believe in fairy tales. That's not the case. The urgency with which we preach, because they might not hear us any, anymore. We might not see these same people again, whoever we meet, just like Jesus hid himself 
we might also have to move on to our daily business. We, we might not see the person that just heard the gospel from us. We might not see him ever again. So when we preach, we ought to, ought, ought to also preach with urgency the way Christ did. He didn't withhold the truth. He preached the truth to them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.